It is so wonderful to be with you all on this topic, as I've already been teased. Yes, we will have to go quickly. Yes, this is a jet tour through the Torah. I thought, hey, a jet tour through Revelation. Our pastor did that once. So we could do a jet tour through the Torah. And then I, and then I started to realize that the Torah is a little bit longer than the book of Revelation. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Well, that is my assignment for my boss, Mark Zakovich, and of course, I will need to talk quickly, and I've been criticized and already teased for doing this, and rightly so, but we have been working on uh, the MacArthur Old Testament commentary. We finished Zechariah, and now we are in Daniel, and it has just been a wonderful experience and in multiple ways, and one of the ways is this, is that as I've been reading Pastor John's sermons on Daniel, one time he said the following, quote, I've been criticized for speaking fast. Now, that got my attention. And he said, and I was reading in a journal, Psychology Today, that the faster you speak, the more people pay attention to you. So, of course, being very excited about this news, I texted my boss, Mark Zakovich, look, there's evidence for what I do. He wrote back to me. He said, good job using psychology to justify your sins. You can't win. Well, I am grateful for the opportunity this evening, and things will only go well if we trust our time to the Lord and for his glory. So to that end, shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. Every word is perfect. Every word is profitable. Every word inspired. And may it be that this evening our eyes would be open to wondrous things, not only in the scriptures and the revealed truth, but that that would reflect upon the God of the word that our hearts would be captured to the glory of who you are and your unstoppable and magnificent plan that all focuses upon your Son. Allow us a platform to know better each part of the Scriptures and all its depth and beauty that you have revealed deliberately so that we would be profited and made unto the likeness of your Son and put on display glorious things that you have done from generation to generation to generation, demonstrating your sovereignty, demonstrating your rule, demonstrating your majesty. And may our hearts leave knowing your word better and being more apt to worship you in thought and word indeed for the honor of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. We are about to, as has been alluded before, to do something that I pray would be a tremendous blessing and tremendous edification to the body here at Grace Community Church, a a really helpful resource for us, and that is that we are going to preach through the Torah. And as we contemplate the value of this and really thinking about the foundation that this lays not only for the Old Testament but even for the New Testament, let me just illustrate by several points the importance and and the treasure that this is. At the Master's University, I often comment that students should really take advantage of their Bible survey classes, Old Testament and New Testament, because often it's the first and the last time that they will really be able to have the opportunity to work through the scriptures, book by book, passage by passage, to really know and be familiar with the whole Bible. It is a unique and wonderful opportunity afforded to them to grasp and put their hands around the whole scriptures because we don't just want 
part of the truth. We want the whole truth, all that God desired for us to have because all of it is necessary for our life in this world. And that's especially the case with the Old Testament because it is two-thirds of our Bible and there is a lot of rich truths in the Old Testament. You talk about creation and the nature of God and sin and salvation and holiness and angels and wisdom and Christ and the spirit and the nature of witness as a kingdom of priests and the end times and the entire world and God's plan for the world. Put simply, in the Old Testament, you have every single category of the 10 systematic categories of theology laid out in at least some form or the other. There is preciousness in here and the foundation of doctrine, and it's all grounded in the Old Testament. And on top of that, it is a foundation for the New Testament. We think about Israel. We think about Jerusalem. We think about the Lamb of God. We think about concepts like sacrifice and justification and and atonement. They're all found in the Old Testament. And when you have the Old Testament details in the New Testament, they pop. For example, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because the Old Testament reminds us that David was born in Bethlehem. And so the new David, the one who will resurrect the line of David and bring it to its culmination, must also be born in Bethlehem. Why is Jesus tempted or tested in the wilderness? Because Moses was tried in the wilderness. And David was tried in the wilderness. And Israel is tried in the wilderness. And in the like manner, Jesus bears all that on his shoulders and unlike all of his predecessors, he does not fail any other test, proving he is the one who culminates the entire line. Why does Jesus minister in Galilee predominantly in the New Testament? Well, it's because, as Isaiah reminds us, Galilee was always under attack first because you always invaded from the, from the north, and that's where Galilee is. And those who have seen the darkness will see the great light. This is the mercy of God upon people as Christ, in a sense, invades his country and retakes it for himself. Why is it so unique that Jesus heals the blind, as it reminds us in the book of John? Well, because in the Old Testament, Isaiah revealed that Israel had eyes but did not see, and ears that did not hear. And that was their spiritual problem in a nutshell. And so it is assigned uniquely to the suffering servant to heal the blind, to show that he heals not just their physical problem, but the ultimate problem that they have, namely their spiritual blindness. You see, everything in the New Testament, every detail pops when you have the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament grounds us in all these rich truths of theology that enhance everything and make sense of everything. And so you really need the whole Bible. After all, only having a third of anything is usually not enough. If you have a third of a car, that's a bicycle. If you have a third of your classes, you're not a senior, you're basically a freshman. If you have a third of a movie or a book, that's called frustration. And if you have a third of a cake, you're on a diet. A third of anything really isn't enough. You need the whole, and it's rich. And so we should love learning the whole Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament. And the Torah lays the foundation, the, lays the foundation for it all. If you've ever been confused, if you've ever been puzzled, why do we have these other books of the Old Testament? Whether that be Kings or Psalms or the prophets. If you've ever wondered that, it's because you need the Torah. 
There is a saying, there was a phrase, I, I used to see this picture in this poem in a lot of dentists' office in the Midwest. I don't know if they're out here in California, but it said this, everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten. And the idea is not that you knew everything that there was to know in kindergarten, but kindergarten laid some of the most foundational truths for everything in life. In the like manner, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, lay some of the most foundational truths for everything you need to know in the Bible. If you have been confused by any biblical book, the deficiency goes back to our understanding of the first five books of the Old Testament. And within this, to learn these first five books well, it is a tremendous opportunity to do so, but to learn them well, it is often best to have a bird's eye view of them first. That way, we have a platform by which we can get deeper. And that's part of my prayer for this time, that from this message and from the truth shares, that you would have a framework, an infrastructure, so that you could get deeper into the Old Testament, into the first five books of the Old Testament in your own personal devotions. Likewise, this vantage point offers us something very important, that God has a plan These books are not random. The truths therein are not random. There is a purpose behind it all, a unity behind it all. And in seeing it, we are reminded of what the psalmist says, that we delight in declaring the works of God from one generation to another. This is what we will see tonight. It is something that glorifies God. And so in a way, because this is one cohesive plan, one cohesive story, it's kind of like story time with Chow. That's what we're going to have tonight. And this story is divided because we are covering five books, five points. And in summary, you could say it this way. God rules, point one, Genesis. God redeems, that's Exodus. God requires, that's Leviticus. God refines, that's Numbers. And Deuteronomy is God regulates. Putting all this together traces how God moves his plan of redemption forward. And with this in mind, let's talk about the book of Genesis. God rules. God rules. Where do you start? You start at the book of Genesis. You start at the beginning, which begins with in the beginning. And the beginning of everything, and the beginning of the Bible, and the beginning of God's entire plan reveals to us one simple truth, and that is this God rules. God rules. He is the creator uncreated, and everything else is creation. He is directly other, transcendent above, in a category altogether himself. He is the ruler, the absolute sovereign over every place in this created order. That's what you see in the first three days with day and night, light and darkness, as well as sky and sea, as well as dry land. He rules over every space, and days four, five, and six in corresponding fashion show he rules over everything that fills the space. If you rule over all space and everything that is within it, the world and all its fullness, you rule over everything. That is the announcement of Genesis chapter one, and everything within it, everything within it, every detail announces the sovereignty of God as he speaks and it happens and there is no resistance. Everything is under his absolute sovereign control. That is what Genesis 1 
delivers to us. He even controls time. He defines day and night. He controls time. He formulates a week. The basic measurements of what everything in this world operates by, he is absolutely sovereign over every molecule, over every detail, over every operation. Even man who rules God gives man that task, but for that very reason, man is made in the image of God. Man is meant to reflect God. Everything points back to him. That's why even on the Sabbath, it is all holy to Yahweh. It is holy to God because everything is about his glory. But God is not just great. He's good. He's good. In this action of authority and power and creation, God demonstrates his brilliant goodness. Every day is called good. The creation is called very good. And you begin to realize how much beauty God has formed in this world. The moment he created light, he created the properties of light, which means this, at that moment, he created colors. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He created beauty He created Eden. He created, in Genesis 2, all the relationships therein and all their richness and all their affection and all their love. He is not just great, he is good. And the opening chapters of Genesis announce that we have the creator, perfect in his greatness, perfect in his goodness. But then Genesis 3 comes a challenge, a challenge, a literal satanic coup, a diabolical plot using creation to try to overthrow the creator as Satan used a creature to overthrow and subvert woman, then man, then ultimately God. And through sin and disobedience, it looked like Satan won. For a moment, it appeared, key word there, that there was a victory that Satan had as the world catastrophically fell through one man's disobedience. You had all the shame and all the blame and hiding from God and all the consequences culminating in death and everything in this world in one moment fell apart. It was catastrophic. It was an absolute disaster. But here's the message of Genesis 3. Even then, our God rules. Even then, in the worst moment where everything looks like it has shattered, our God rules. And he has a message for this serpent. He has this message for, this, for Satan, and that is this, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. And the message is this, it's simple. Satan, you have never won, ever. You do not win now. Why? Because God will put enmity between him and the woman. He does not win now, He will not win in history. Why? Because God says, I will put enmity between your seed, that's the serpent seed, and her seed. There will always be a remnant preserved from Satan's control. And Satan will not just not win now. He will not win not only in the history of mankind. He will also not win ultimately. Why? Because he, there will be one, arising from the line of the seed, he, singular, a man, will arise who is God-man ultimately, as we know, and that one will bruise the serpent's head even as his heel is struck. You will not win in the end, Satan, either, 
Satan does not win at that moment. Satan does not win historically. Satan does not win ultimately. That is the message of Genesis 3.15 because the very mechanism by which Satan thought he could conquer, that is using man, God will use man to conquer him. That is ultimately his son. And with that then, there is a clear message. God rules and he will rule. God rules and he will rule. There is a clear agenda. He will preserve a line. He will preserve a seed. And the culmination of that seed will be the second Adam, the final Adam, the God-man, his son, who will land the crushing blow to the serpent and redeem his people. That's God's agenda. From the very beginning, there is a purpose behind everything that happens in the scripture. It all moves toward that very end. And that's precisely what happens throughout the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Torah. That's why we have genealogies. Some of us here might be saying, oh, genealogies, that's boring. But it's not boring. It's important. Why? Because those genealogies demonstrate God is faithful. Every generation, he has preserved his line of the seed toward his son. He has preserved the line against the satanic schemes, the murderous schemes of Cain. He has preserved that line against a fallen world, a world that is degraded by sin. And so God floods the world, both in judgment and in restoration. He gives the world a bath. That's how you could put it. And all of that so that his plan will continue. He preserves the line after the flood, a catastrophic flood, and preserves it through Noah and continues that line. He still preserves it even more against itself because we know when humanity is united, say with one language, there is only one proclivity they will have which is to rebel against God and halt redemptive history in that way. And so God, to continue his plan, splits man against himself, nation against nation, so that, so that by counteracting itself, sin is restrained. And as a result, his plan will continue. And so God restrains sin and God restrains the degradation of creation all so that his plan will prevail and continue on. He rearranges the entire landscape of the world to ensure that this happens. He's preserving his line of the seed. He reigns and he will reign. Now, having understood this, you may wonder, well, why does Israel exist? Because if God, and since God has created nations in order to restrain sin, you need then a nation to witness to all of those other nations. We may not know why, in a sense, God chose Israel, say over China or the United States of America or Mexico or Canada or whatever other nation you may think of, but we do know the purpose. Israel's purpose is to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel's purpose is not just for themselves. Everything that they are given is so that God will use them, one nation, to make an international impact. And what is that international impact? What we see in Genesis chapter 12 is this reality. God reigns, and he still will reign, and he will reign. There is blessing brought and promises brought to Israel, land and seed and blessing that all tie back 
to creation. And Israel's announcement to the world is our God still reigns. His plan to restore all things and to have a seed that will bring blessing, that plan is true. And there are a lot of lessons that you learn within this as God reveals all the mechanics and all the details of such a grand plan. We learn from Abraham that the righteous are justified by faith. We learn from the generation of Isaac and Jacob that yes, that God redeems and that God He is the one who fights for his people. That's why the word Jacob, which means struggler, is changed to the word Israel. And the word Israel means Yahweh fights for you. God fights for you. And toward the end of the book of Genesis, we learn the lesson that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that is not just speaking of what happens in the life of Joseph and in the life of Judah, but it speaks to God's very agenda because in the beginning, what began as evil, God always had meant it for what? For good. And so you learn this lesson that Israel was supposed to learn and Israel was supposed to announce as it made an international impact on all the rest of the world that you believe in God who fights for you and he fights to turn evil to good. That is the message of Israel to the entire world and laid out in the book of Genesis. God rules and he will rule. For that very reason, at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, there is a prophecy. A prophecy about Shiloh coming from the line of Judah. And it says this, that when Shiloh comes, all will be made right. People will wash their clothes in wine and stain their teeth with milk. Why? Because there will be such plentiful harvest and such plentiful bounty that milk and cattle and grapes will be more plentiful than even water. All creation will be restored. Our God rules and he will rule. He will make all things right. Genesis announces this grand plan that yes, while some may have meant it for evil, God truly will turn it to good in the end. And that's part of God's plan. And that's what Israel's announcing. But for this very reason, his plan must continue to accomplish this end. And the book of Genesis, it ends with Israel in Egypt and Joseph dying in Egypt. And so you gotta get Israel back home. You gotta get them back to the land so that this plan can continue. And therefore, Genesis demands the book of Exodus. That's where this plan goes. And in the book of Exodus, we know that God must get Israel out of Egypt. He must free them and deliver them. And he must launch them as a nation so that they can proclaim this plan. And so that this plan in the line of the seed of Genesis 3.15 can continue. And as a result, this provides God an opportunity. An opportunity to solidify everything that he just said with one idea, one central concept that Israel, through Israel, he will announce to the entire world. And so what do you, what is it called when you talk about faith and you talk about God fighting for us and you talk about turning evil to good? There is one word that summarizes it, redemption. Redemption, that is the word. And that's what Exodus is about. It is about redemption. And that is precisely why in the book of Exodus, God first raises up a man to lead redemption. That would be Moses. If you read Moses' birth, it's a fascinating story. Let me point out one observation just to illustrate how God is already positioning redemption. Moses is put into a basket. We remember that. But the word for basket is actually the word ark, like Noah's ark. Now, to be clear, Moses' mother is not floating Noah's ark down the Nile. 
That's hardly inconspicuous to hide him from Pharaoh and his wrath. But there's a reason why Moses describes it like that, because it is a reminder. This is the man that God has raised up for a purpose, the purpose of redemption, the purpose of deliverance. God shows this there is a man for deliverance because he's preparing the way for deliverance in this book, preparing the way for redemption. But he doesn't just show the man for redemption. More importantly, he shows the God of redemption. As God summons and calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, God reveals his name, his very essence to Moses. And what does he say? I am who I am. tremendously profound statement, a statement that shows and talks about God's transcendence. He is I am. He is infinite. He didn't become. He didn't have to be created. He is I am. He's infinite, eternal. He's also immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't become different things. He is I am. Furthermore, he is independent. Nothing is He depends on nothing, and he is contingent on nothing, but rather, he is I am. He always is. No matter what everything else may or may not be, he is. God is infinite. He is independent, and he is immutable. And furthermore, what does the full phrase say? I am who I am. The only definition of God that is true is simple. It is God. That is it. You say, "But, but God could be like this. Notice you had to use the word like. And notice, when you even say, well, God is love, well, that's not all that is in God. The only definition that is true and the definition that God himself gives is that God is God. That's it. We cannot bring God down to our level or compartmentalize him or define him with our pure characterizations. And furthermore, we can never go up to God's level as if we know God completely on our own. God gives the most profound definition, and why does he give that most profound definition? Simple in this context, because only such a God could come up with redemption and accomplish redemption. That is the transcendence of our God. And so we have the man raised up for redemption, that's Moses, but more importantly, we have the God who redeems. I am who I am. And that name and that essence and that agenda will be demonstrated in the book of Exodus. For when God says, thus says Yahweh, I am who I am, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is this, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of that name. And you know what Pharaoh after that says? He says, thus says Pharaoh, make bricks without straw provided. He mocks the name of God. Now he has thrown down the gauntlet. Now we have a challenge. Now we have the opportunity for redemption to play out. And with 10 mighty plagues, why 10? Goes back to even the account of creation. God spoke 10 times in Genesis chapter one. So there are 10 plagues reminding that God is the creator. And in these 10 plagues, they not only remind that God is the creator, they are an attack physically on Egypt, each set of three with one bonus reminding us that there is an intensifying assault against the nation of Egypt. Even more, there is retaliation against Egypt for what they did against Israel. For example, they Egypt threw Israel's children into the Nile. So what is the first judgment? A judgment against the Nile. God says, if you do this to my children, I do this to your Nile. 
There is retaliation there as God stands for his people. But most of all, this is retaliation and demonstration and a complete assault on the Egyptian pantheon. For instance, and you can't really make this stuff up, the God of the Nile, his name is Happy. Okay, not H-A-P-P-Y, H-A-P-I, but nevertheless, his name is Happy. And you might wonder, why turn the Nile into blood? You could turn it into all kinds of things, like jello. You know, you can't drink jello. It's not useful. You could turn it into dirt. You could do all kinds of things. Why turn it into blood? It's a message to all of Egypt. Your God happy? Happy's dead. God killed happy. That's what happened. Every plague is like that, culminating in the 10th plague, where it is about Pharaoh himself and Pharaoh's son. If God can kill Pharaoh's son, every firstborn dies, then there is no God who rivals God himself. Yahweh is the only God, and Passover is the celebration of that culminative redemption. It is a remembrance of that redemption, and it even has an epilogue to this where just in case Pharaoh thought because Moses was always mediating all of these miracles, that perhaps Pharaoh versus Moses was the contest. God, in the parting of the Red Sea, the cloud, the pillar of cloud of the angel of Yahweh appears to Pharaoh directly, and Pharaoh, it says in Exodus 14, cannot pass. And that is the clear demonstration, man to man, so to speak. Pharaoh, you are not God. There is only one who is I am who I am. He is the true God of redemption. That is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is I am, and he alone is the Savior. And as they crossed the Red Sea and following that catastrophic judgment against the nation of Egypt, Israel is geared to do one thing. Geared to be a witness to the world, to be sure, but to do that by remembering such redemption. Everything in Exodus 16 and following, it is meant to teach us about the nature of the law. It is a reminder that the law was never, it was never about work salvation. Rather, just like the word Torah means to teach, just like the word Torah means to instruct, just like the word Torah, it actually means to point, just like when God pointed out a tree to bring healing to the waters. In Exodus 15, at the very end of it, the law was always meant to point to the God who does save. The law never saved, never. It just points you to the one who does. And Israel was supposed to be prepared to understand that the law did that. Israel was supposed to be prepared to understand like the law points to your sin. That's why Israel can never obey God in Exodus chapter 16. And Israel was supposed to remember that the law not only pointed out their own sin and their need for salvation, but they were to use the law to point everyone, all the nations to salvation. For this very reason in Exodus 19, Israel is called a kingdom of priests. They are meant to lead people to God. They are meant to direct and point people to God. That is their role. They are a kingdom of priests. And so God has raised up in Exodus redemption, a man of redemption, the God of redemption, the power of redemption. And now he has raised up the reminder of redemption through the people of Israel. That's why they're given the laws that they are given. That's even why they have the rules about slaves in the book of Exodus. It is a reminder that there is a slavery that is wrong. 
like the slavery that they had in Egypt, a metaphor for the slavery of sin, but that there is a slavery that is good, a slavery to God, serving him forever. And Israel's law codified that reality, that you are freed from one slavery to be the slave of another. And that is true freedom. They were to remember and cause others to remember redemption. It's for this very reason that the structure that they construct is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle with its blue upper tent and all of its design and wooden framework and things that look like trees and bread on the table and all the like, it was meant to represent Eden. And yes, there is separation for now, but what is the hope that one day paradise lost will be paradise restored? God has a plan. Genesis 3.15 is moving forward. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God reigns, he still reigns, and how does he do that? He will do it by redemption. But speaking of Genesis 3, there is a tremendous need because physical deliverance is never enough. God delivered one nation from another nation. True, mightily so, but that's not the crux of all deliverance. We know in Genesis 3, it was by one man's disobedience. It wasn't because of a political or social issue that the world fell, but because of sin. And Israel is a reminder of that as well. Even after being so delivered physically and so spectacularly and so supernaturally and miraculously, Israel still falls into sin with the golden calf and they deserve to die. And what is that a demonstration of? True redemption is not just physical. It must be spiritual. And then you learn the full name of Yahweh. Not just that I am who I am, amen and amen, but that he is gracious and compassionate and he's forgiving of sin. Why? Because that is the fullness of redemption. That is what Israel is looking forward to. And so Exodus is pointing to a new Exodus, a final Exodus, one that doesn't just deliver you physically, but one that delivers in the way that you always need deliverance from the book of Genesis, from Genesis chapter three, and that is spiritually. That is where things are going. And with that then, you know that the holy God, who is the one who judges sin, must be satisfied. And with that then, Exodus leads to the next book, which is the book of Leviticus. And now we understand God rules. He always rules. His glory is always on display. And he will accomplish and prove that point through his redemption. And that redemption is predicated upon this, that he requires. He requires holiness. And that gets you to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, for some of us here, seems like a very confusing book. Why? Because it seems like it's very complicated with all the instructions. Here's how you need to understand it. There's a lot of things that you could use to understand it, from fast food restaurants to careful, careful cookbooks of instruction. But there's a reason for that, because all of this deals with hands-on instruction. This was meant not just to be read, but to be done. And when you read it like that, actions speak louder than Words and through a hands-on, tactile, immersive experience, you really understand the holiness of God. And let me just lay it out for you. In the opening chapters of Leviticus, it's a simple message. The way you become holy must be holy. The way you become holy must be holy. God has rules about his sacrifices. You say, why? Because the way you become holy, the way you worship, the way you are forgiven, it isn't up to you. It isn't arbitrary. It isn't decided by chance. It isn't decided by you. It must satisfy the holy God in only one way 
can do that because our God is so holy and perfect. And so all the sacrifices and all their combinations demonstrate the way that holiness must be satisfied. And it culminates. It culminates in Leviticus chapter 10 with the issue and the story of Nadab and Abihu. We know they offered strange fire. What does that mean? It just means the fire was different. It, it varied, perhaps even in one small element, from the prescribed exact formulation that God gave. And what happened to them? Fire incinerated them. And here's the lesson. Our God does not care about good intentions. Our God is not just about a nice try. Our God is not just one who says, well, you tried hard. Our God is holy. And that holiness is a holy perfection. And it must be satisfied. Good try doesn't count. I tried my own way is an abomination. Let me put it simple. And as as the irony and the pun in Leviticus itself demonstrates, you either offer the right sacrifice or you become the sacrifice. That's what happens. You either offer the right sacrifice or you become the sacrifice. There is one sacrifice for sin, and it must be offered the exact way God prescribes. Otherwise, you are the sacrifice, and you bear the weight of sin on your own shoulders. That's it. Sometimes people wonder, why is there only one way and one name under heaven by which any man can be saved? It's simple, because our God is not just a man. He is not just an elevated human being. He's God. He is holy, and holiness requires holy, exact perfection, and so there is only one way. There is only one way that satisfies such a perfect standard. The way you become holy must be holy. God shows, you want redemption, I rule, you want to know how that all works out? It is simple, God requires holiness. There is only one way. And God reminds us of his holiness, not only through the way you become holy in sacrifice and worship, he reminds us of his holy through clean and unclean rules. And you say, why do those rules exist? And why are they not called sins and not sins and sins and righteousness? Why clean and unclean? Because those issues, you may say, in a sense, were issues of preference. They were not inherently immoral versus morality, right versus wrong. But even then, Even then, if you wanted to draw near to God, to come clean and be intimate with him, those things matter. It's a reminder of this. Even matters of preference, even the so-called gray issues, you must be holy. You must be holy. You're not just holy in the big things. You're holy in the small things. You're not just holy in the large and significant and public things. You're holy in private. You're not just holy in the massive things of life. You're holy in the mundane, even what you eat. Israel would demonstrate that to the whole world. When the whole world is eating bacon and they can't, it's a message. It's a message. By the way, how do we even identify archaeologically if a site is Israelite? It's simple. There's no pig bones. Even thousands of years later, holiness is a testimony. It's a testimony. And so the book of Leviticus reminds us of God's holiness. The way you become holy must be holy. Even holiness in the mundane is required. And this moves toward the Day of Atonement, a yearly celebration, which should just remind you that the system is built in with defectiveness. It is built in with an effectiveness to tell you this, that the system, this can't be the final thing. Because if you have to keep doing it over and over and over again, it can't be the final thing. There's a problem with it. And it's intentional to point to something greater. But the Day of Atonement reminds us of this. 
that when atonement is made, it establishes a system. It establishes a system. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember this, that our Lord, he atoned for us. Our Lord satisfied God's punishment. Our Lord satisfied God's wrath. But he did not just give us forgiveness. Amen, he did. But along with that, he gave us an entire new system by which we relate to him. And Leviticus 16 is a reminder that when atonement is made, it establishes not just forgiveness, but an entire system. And therefore, when the greatest and final atonement, the true atonement is made, it establishes a, a better system, the best system. And I love the word wording of Hebrews, by which we draw near to God. Look in Leviticus sometime and notice all the language. If you do this, you may draw near to God. If you do that, you may draw near to God. You may draw near to God with this offering. You may draw near to God with this sacrifice, but we knew you could never draw really near. But in Hebrews, for the first time, you can. Why? Because you have the final sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the ultimate, definitive one, that is Christ. And following the day of atonement, we are reminded of God's holiness, that he is holy in personal matters. He is holy in community. He is holy in corporate. He's holy in society. He's holy in your calendar. He's holy in everything. But here's the point. If you really become a holy people, this is what God says in Leviticus 26. He says this, I will walk among you. Leviticus 26, verse 12. You say, what, why is that significant? What did God do in the garden? He walked. What did he do with Enoch? Enoch walked with God. What is God's promise? If you're holy, one day we'll go back to that, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. God has a plan. He rules, and he will redeem, and the way he will redeem is not just physically but spiritually. How will that happen? Because he requires holiness, and when that holiness is satisfied, there will be so great a redemption, so great a reunion. And that's how the book of Leviticus closes. But to accomplish so great a redemption, to accomplish that holiness, the plan must go forward. And Israel right now, they're still at Mount Sinai. So you got to get them to the promised land. And therefore, Leviticus goes to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, what we see as Israel travels is that God doesn't just speak about holiness. He shows it. He doesn't just discuss holiness like he does in Leviticus. He demonstrates it. And they do that in their travels. And you can see this then that God will refine his people as he implements and executes his holiness as they are in the wilderness. And the way it works is by two censuses. That's how numbers is divided. In chapters 1 through 25 or so, you have one census. And in chapters 26 and following, you have the next generation. And we see how God refines his people. God refines his people and God announces his holy agenda to the entire world as Israel marches in the wilderness and the way that the camp is arranged is in battle formation. The message is clear. God doesn't just talk about holiness. He's going to fight for holiness. That's what's announced to the world. And Israel was to announce God's holiness and all that they did from the laws concerning adultery, clean and unclean, and even the Nazarite vow. But Israel won't just announce this positively. They will demonstrate this negatively through the way that God will judge and refine them. So in Israel in the wilderness, what happens? They complain, and what does God do? He judges them. Why? Because he's holy, and he's showing that. He doesn't just say it, he shows it. And God not only judges them in his holiness for complaining, but then even there is insubordination in the camp with Miriam and Aaron. What's the reminder? Even leaders can be judged. 
Even leaders can be judged. And if you have lay people and leaders all being judged, then you know that the whole generation will be judged. And you know then, and you can see it on display with such clarity. You want to see how God is so holy? How about this? An entire generation of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people in the wilderness perish because God is holy. That sends a message. Our God is holy. And when he says he's holy, he means it. Take it seriously. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, illustrate that truth. He's holy as he refines them in his judgment. He's holy as he refines those who break the Sabbath in his judgment. He's holy as those who are impatient in the wilderness are afflicted with serpents in his judgment. He's holy as even Moses who strikes the rock and just breaks a slight command, is prohibited from going into the promised land. No matter how good you think you are or what you have done for the Lord, there are no exceptions to the rule. God is holy, and he has demonstrated it. But you know, the beauty of all this is this, that God, in his holiness, is faithful. He's holy to his faithful purposes. Numbers 15, after Israel does, is prohibited from entering the land, it opens with this. Phrase, I love it. When you enter the promised land. Did you hear that? When you enter. Not if, but when. God will get his people home. And he's been refining them. And he's been bringing them closer to the land. And as he's brought them closer to the land, they fight against other nations, which is a foreshadowing, a demonstration that God is faithful in what he will do. And that gets the nation's attention. And so they consult with the friendly God whisperer, Balaam, and his talking donkey. And they ask him, can you help us to know what God's plan is? What's his agenda? What's his end game? Help us to understand that. And and maybe you can manipulate him too in the process. And so Balaam soon tries to contest with God, only realizing he cannot manipulate God, but only reveal, and this is what he reveals. God does have precious promises for Israel. God is not a man that he should ever repent or ever relent. And God's plan is that Israel's destiny would be beautiful and the nations would be blessed in him. But fourth and finally, Numbers 24, it says this, that there will be a Messiah. And the Messiah will be a star that rises out of Jacob and he will crush their head. Where have you heard the language of crushing the head? Genesis 3.15. And with that, Balaam announces to the whole world, God's plan of Genesis 3.15, the plan to preserve a seed unto the Messiah, it's continuing on. And all the nations start to understand this agenda that God has. God is using Israel toward that end. And as one generation fades, a new generation arises, and God has refined his people. He's refined them tremendously in the wilderness. And that second generation, unlike the first, they love the land. They're concerned with the land. Not only men, but also women. Zelephaphat's daughters, you can read about them in Numbers chapter 27. They are so concerned about the land that they ask God for special permission to own the land, and God grants it. God grants it. All that demonstrates is that God's people love the land. Why? Because he has successfully refined them. He is the God who sanctifies. He's the God who refines. Well, now they're at the cusp of the promised land. And at the cusp of the promised land, they're ready to go in. And they're ready to do what God has for them to do. And therefore, they need to be thoroughly prepared to do that mission so that God's plan will advance, so that the Messiah will be announced as he comes. 
and therefore Numbers leads to the book of Deuteronomy. And so what we have is that God rules and that he intends to redeem and his redemption is based upon his holy requirement and that holy requirement has a refining effect but ultimately that must be conveyed as God regulates what Israel will do and say in the book of Deuteronomy and you could simply put it this way, Deuteronomy is the constitution for Israel. Deuteronomy is the constitution for Israel and it tells Israel what they should be doing and where things are heading and it's simple What is God's command for Israel? He says this, this is the command. Deuteronomy 6, verses four through five. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. We know that. God was never about legalism, ever. It was always about love. And that's what Israel was to testify. And everything in the book of Deuteronomy is how to express to God love for him. That's why even Deuteronomy 12 through 26, it's not random. It's actually based upon the 10 commandments in that order. All of these commands are about how to show God how much you love him and everything you say and do. But that requires that you love God with all your heart, which requires you, as Deuteronomy 10 says, to have a circumcised heart. And here's what Deuteronomy 29 says, that yes, you must love Yahweh with all your heart. Yes, that requires you to have a circumcised heart. Yes, but in Deuteronomy 29, it says this, and Yahweh did not give you the heart to love him. Israel would be totally puzzled if they put two and two together at this point. Wait, we have to love God with all our heart. Yes, that requires a circumcised heart. Yes, but God has not given us that heart. Yes. So how are we gonna do that? Yes. And that's why in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says this, the secret things belong to the Lord. We use that often for Calvinism. We didn't know. It is used about Calvinism in the original context. But the nice thing is this, the next chapter gives you the answer, and it says this, because Yahweh will circumcise your heart. There will be a day. You can't circumcise your own heart. You need a circumcised heart. You need to love Yahweh with all your heart. But here's where everything is going. There will be a day where Yahweh will send someone and he will circumcise your heart. And that one is a new Moses. There has been a prophet not like Moses up until this time and beyond this time. And Moses says, but there will be. There will be a prophet like Moses in days to come. Why? Because there will be a prophet who brings a covenant better than the covenant that Moses brought. Think about this. Moses brought a covenant on Mount Sinai, yes? And that covenant, we know. I mean, it's obvious from Deuteronomy. You have maybe 10 verses about blessing, and then you have 56 verses about curses. Which do you think is more dominant? But there's another man, the God man. He comes down a mountain. He, in fact, gives a sermon on the mount. And what are the first words out of his mouth in Matthew 5? Not curse, but what? Blessed. And that tells you everything. There is a man yet to come a new prophet, a final Moses, who will circumcise your heart and he will bring blessing. And that is the fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15, the accomplishment of that. And so the Torah concludes, Israel's ready to enter the land and they know their God. Their God is the one who rules. Their God is the one who redeems. Their God is the one who requires. Their God is the one who refines and their God is the one who regulates. And they know his plan, that there is a Genesis 3.15 plan moving forward and they are part of that plan to announce and witness to the whole world about the glories of God and his redemptive work. But as they enter the land, and as they know that they are part of that plan, their eyes, 
based upon Moses' own regulation, based upon Moses' own anticipation, are on the new Moses, are on the final seed, on the one who is the scepter of Genesis, on the one who is the star mentioned in Numbers, on the one who is the final Moses and the final Adam mentioned in Genesis and Deuteronomy. And their eyes are on him, and their job as a kingdom of priests is to point all to him. That's where everything is going. That's the plan of God. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your mercy to us. And thank you for such a clear plan. Glory after glory, miracle after miracle, faithfulness after faithfulness, all pushing forward, revealing the weight of what your son has done for us and will do in the future. May all glory be to him for such a weight of redemption. And may we love all that is revealed about you in all your faithfulness, in all your sovereignty. And may it cause our hearts to worship you and our lives to be holy unto you and for us to know how great a salvation we have in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.